when we start to think about the amygdala not it's not saying you're afraid it's saying watch out there's something that's unfamiliar to you around the corner that's in this area and maybe that's an actual threat but maybe it's just somebody you've never met before maybe it's something about yourself that you didn't knew before we have the ability to literally retrain that part by remembering one of the common sentiments that comes from things like ketamine assisted therapy or uh, mdma assisted therapy or profound meditative states which is that we're all human first welcome to commune my name is jeff krasno today on the show we're exploring plant medicine now, the term plant medicine generally refers to the use of plants and plant-derived compounds for medicinal purposes. Now, this field encompasses a wide range of practices and ancient traditions, including traditional herbal medicine, ethnobotany, and more recently, the use of psychedelics for treating depression, anxiety, and PTSD. Now, while the use of plants and herbs as medicine can be traced back centuries, really millennia, in practices like traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda. The adoption of plant-based dietary supplements and nutraceuticals has skyrocketed in the last decade. People are increasingly turning to herbal supplement options for general health and wellness, often seeking alternatives to synthetically derived pharmacology. Now, in the last decade, there has been a growing interest specifically in the therapeutic potential of certain psychoactive plant compounds and fungi, such as psilocybin mushrooms, ibogaine, ayahuasca, and others. Now, the generally positive outcomes from psychedelic plant therapy has also led to the exploration of other substances, such as ketamine and MDMA, as potential treatment vehicles. And research right now in this area is exploding the therapeutic use of plants for depression, anxiety, ADD, ADHD, and other psychological conditions represents one of the biggest treatment breakthroughs in decades and may offer alternatives to the standard pharmacological options such as SSRIs and benzodiazepines. So today's episode is a series of excerpts from conversations that I've had about the benefits of using plants and psychedelics as medicine. First up is Dr. Dave Rabin. Now Dave is a neuroscientist at the forefront of psychedelic healthcare. Now Dr. Rabin unravels the misconceptions surrounding serotonin and its relationship to depression, highlighting studies that suggest psychedelic-assisted therapy may provide long-term healing and possibly a cure from some mental illnesses. So without further delay, here's Dr. Dave Rabin on the effectiveness of SSRIs in comparison with psychedelic medicine. How effective then have Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac, SSRIs been in treatment? I mean, it depends on the disorder. If we're talking about yeah. depression, it's probably about 50% of people get some temporary relief. Some basically. relief, yeah, and, and how long that lasts varies quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, in PTSD, it's something like only 30% that get that actually respond to the medicines. So there's over 70% of people that don't. 
And then in anxiety disorders like OCD and other things, there's usually a slightly higher response rate. Okay. Um, so anxiety it? disorders, are they mostly given benzodiazepines or is it? Or no, mostly SSRIs. Mostly now. SSRIs. Yeah. yeah. But I think, again, you know, if you think about what an SSRI is doing, it is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Right. So it's, if you, if you imagine the, the synapse of your brain that is communicating one message to another neuron and sending the message across that your one cell is releasing a, bur a burst of serotonin and then, it's, and then the serotonin fills the synapse, just like we were talking about cortisol earlier, right? Right. And then the receptors get overstimulated yeah. on a chronic long-term basis. We see that the receptors start to pull back, uh -huh. right? People start to experience side effects that are related to desensitization, hmm. numbing, yeah, decreased ability of sexual arousal, orgasm, yeah, right, lack of passion about hobbies or apathy, pleasure, or anything, right, yeah. And the reason for that, this is what this is why this is so interesting to me, is because there's so much we can learn from the. The, the use of these medicines in the real world in patients. Mm -hmm. So when you administer based on the side effect profile and the positive effects, we know that SSRIs like Paxil and Zoloft work for the people they work for because they induce a sort of emotional numbing mm. by sh narrowing the emotional window. So it's not to say you can't experience sad feelings, but you're gonna, your, your window of what, how sad you're going to get is is blunted and your window also of how positive and happy things are going to get is also blunted mm. because serotonin is not a positive or a negative only emotional regulator. It regulates emotion in general, right? It, it helps support the whole range of emotion. The range of emotion is very much related to how meaningful things are to us, mm -hmm. right? The more meaningful something is, the more we can relate to it, the more, the good, the better it makes us feel, then Maybe there's more going on there, right? But maybe that is not about, you know, to offer a complementary theory. Maybe it's not about flooding the receptor because flooding the receptor creates numbing and apathy and decreased pleasure and sadness. So what if it's really about burst activation, mm, right? Yeah. Because what people are reporting from taking SSRIs as a common side effect for extended period of time is feeling apathy. What is apathy? It's lack of meaning right? It's lack of purpose. It's lack of connection and emotional blunting. What do psychedelics do? The opposite, the opposite. Yeah. right? So you administer LSD or psilocybin and you're getting activation at the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor, the same one we're talking about that, that are flooded by, S by SSRIs. Mm -hmm. And then you get an activation at that receptor that's a huge burst which is caused by a giant release of serotonin for a very short window of time, like four to eight hours. And the receptor is activated additionally by some of the psychedelic molecules to increase its ability to clamp onto serotonin, which is called an allosteric binding pathway. It's like psilocybin and LSD can bind the receptor main part sometimes, but they can also bind the side and then it increases the tightness of binding hmm. of, the, of serotonin. So then you get this huge burst activation, which happens only for four to 12 hours or something like that. And that creates this radical shift in meaning where something mm. as mundane as, oh, that song that I never used to like, now I have complete new respect for it. I never, <laughs> I never realized how much I liked this song, right? All of a sudden that song right. means something to me because I've shifted my perspective. 
And Franz Vollenweider, one of my favorite psychedelic scientists based in Switzerland, who's doing some of the best research on LSD and psilocybin and the receptor pathway, showed this, in fact, in the last five years, that if you administer catanserin, which is a 5-HT2A serotonin receptor blocker, Oral, orally active in humans. You just give them this pill or a sugar pill, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled study, give people catanserin to block the 5-HT2A receptor or sugar, mm-hmm. sugar pill. Nobody knows what they're taking. And then you also give them psilocybin or LSD. Only the people who took the placebo sugar pill actually had a change in meaning right. from the psychedelic. Got it. Only those people had burst activation wow. at the 5-HT2A receptor. So when you think about what we're doing to people with SSRIs and the side effect profile, loss of meaning, and you think about what psychedelics do and how they work, which we also just figured out at this particular receptor site, which is create burst activation, which then creates this ubiquity of meaning almost, right? Then maybe it's the burst of the serotonin that matters. Maybe it's not just having more or less. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. It's, it's, it's receptor occupation over time. Hmm. So and, interesting. And density yeah. of, of the molecule, molecular release that matters. Mm-hmm. And so with some forms of psychedelic therapy, are, are we essentially opening up new areas of the brain to talk with other different and divergent areas of the brain that they wouldn't otherwise be talking to? Hence sort of creating, uh, you know, new synapses, but also synaptic density and synaptic efficiency, et cetera. Um, is that a fair, yeah. uh, is that a fair yeah, outline? I would say, I say that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason why that happens is another thing that's really interesting, but it, that, you know, maybe we'll have time to dive into yeah. a little bit, but I think it's really that, yes, people are, our brains are intense automation machines. They're the most advanced automation machines that have ever existed. They suck in information, they experience what's associated with that information, thoughts and feelings, and then they loop it positively right. in a feedback loop to either avoid or attract to a particular situation. And every time we repeat that, those neural networks get stronger automatically. And, and is that what the default mode network is basically? Is our, the, the patterns in which are, we fall into that are the most ingrained and at so, rest at rest. And so yeah. they become essentially bottom up behaviors at that point. They were subconscious behaviors. Yeah. I don't or, know if I would or refer to behaviors, bottom but, up from this in this capacity, yeah. but they're definitely entrained. entrained they're like, yeah. they're so highly entrained that we have forgotten that they're even there. Right. Right. Like the way we think about ourselves or as a physical sensation, it's like, the way we don't feel our clothes on our skin because we've worn clothes for so long that now we notice way more when we're naked because we're cold than we do when we wear clothes where we're comfortable. Right. Or when something doesn't fit quite exactly. right. Exactly. You've been eating too many right. croissants in Paris. <laughs> too much biographical information there. So let's talk about different kinds of ways that we can disrupt that default mode network, uh, sort of agents of kind of neurocatalytic processes, basically. Um, so maybe describe what a neurocatalytic agent is, and we'll, we'll start from there. 
So neurocatalytic agent is something that I would describe as something that accelerates neural activity. So not just neural activity as in just one neuron talking to another, but in this case, I guess what I'm referring to is neural activity around learning and neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So neuroplasticity is, is really defined as the, or understood as the term that relates to how the brain learns, which is in three primary ways. It's making new neurons, neurogenesis, repairing old neurons, neurogeneration. And then the most common way that happens on a basically daily basis for us is, is synaptogenesis. Right. So building new connections between existing neurons, making new wiring between things that are already there. Right. And neuroplasticity is highly concomitant with learning, but it also seems to be absolutely central towards around addressing mental illness. Well, right, because we're talking about unlearning old behaviors that don't serve us and relearning new behaviors that do, including the way we think about ourselves. So if we think about if you just, you know, many of us don't even realize that we have a certain behavior pattern we've established that is the way that I describe myself. And when somebody would ask you, like, how would you describe yourself? You might say, like, well, I'm a total piece of shit, you know? And how are you going to, how is that possibly going to make you feel good about yourself or confident or whatever if that's how you actually think about yourself inside versus thinking about yourself as a joyful person seeking more joy in the world? Right. Well, it's tricky because we are pre programmed by our our senses, the instruments that we have at our disposal um, to feel a a sense of separateness because for reasons of, you know, that relate to sort of a biological imperative, we need to perceive threat. So all of our senses are geared towards perception in the external world. So we begin to label everything in kind of the foreground of our visual field, for example, you know, well, there's a camera that feels safe enough, but like there's something that, that might not feel safe and there's a plant and there's Wellington and like there's a light and, you know, as one develops their, their visual capabilities early in life, you begin to label every single thing outside of you. Right. And as you know, that seems fine and dandy kind of when you're three or four years old, that's absolutely you know, that's part of your, for your self-preservation. And, and, but as you, you know, become a teenager or an adolescent, you start to label things around you like, well, there's someone that has more money than I do, or there's someone that has greater social status or is more beautiful given, you know, the aesthetic uh, mores of society or whatever. And inherent to that labeling of everything in your external world is a self labeling Mm -hmm. and that self-labeling is what informs the ego the symbol that we give ourselves and then we confuse who we are with the symbol that we give ourselves Mm -hmm. so i'm dave rabin neuroscientist and i'm married and i've got a snappy blazer on you become those things you know instead of whatever you might want to say you know conscious the consciousness upon which all that phenomenon is etched or we can kind of you know get into all of that kind of stuff but that it's the hyper association with one's ego, with the roles that one plays in society that feeds this sense of perceived deficiency. Right. And so that we're always seeking out external agents to assuage that feeling 
of perceived efficiency or our discontents, et cetera. And so, and that can lead to all sorts of, um, you know, detrimental behaviors, you know, addictions of all sorts, et cetera. So this is kind of what we're sort of up against mm -hmm. given, you know, our God given innate sensory instruments and, and science's genius to enhance them with telescopes and hearing aids and things like that. But still, so in a way, it's almost like we have to transcend part of our, um, our senses. And that is hard within the culture, the specific culture that we live in, which constantly tells us that you are an individual, that you are separate from other people, that you're right. separate from nature, that pits you in competition and in comparison with everything in your external consciousness. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, and a, that's the default mode and that's the default mode. And this wasn't always true. And we often confuse culture and nature. So we say, oh, well, it's human nature to be selfish or to be self-absorbed or to want to accumulate goods and stuff and services, and what have you. But, but that to is a own thing to own things, but that is a confusion between culture and nature because that was not our nature for the overwhelming majority of the history of the human species. You know, we lived in geodomes with 50 other people and raised our children communally and went in and hunted for food together for the group and shared everything and shared everything. Yeah. And so, um, when you have pre-programmed senses that are already geared to make you feel separate for a biological imperative, and then you have a culture lopping on a, uh, a modus operandi geared towards the individual incessantly, nonstop, at every turn, what are you going to end up with? I mean, you know, our friend Gabor Nate uses the petri dish as a wonderful example it's like you you try to grow, grow a pluripotent stem cell inside a petri dish that has ammonia and alcohol in it it's not going to do well and you call that biological medium a culture so what is the biological medium that you and i and my children are growing up in well it's a particular kind of culture where that culture is toxic and caustic the only expected result is trauma-inducing events that lead to all these forms of mental disorders. And so it's like, it's not, shouldn't be like a huge surprise what's happening. Fortunately, the good news, again, the gospel, um, is that there are all of these emerging protocols um, to address some of these core issues. So let's let's get into some of them, um, sort of the non-psychedelic ones first, and then you know potentially um, crawl our way into uh, into some ketamine therapy, and maybe we can talk about some of the other ones. So when you talk about protocols for um, for uh, neurocatalytic as neurocatalytic agents, what are some of those protocols that we can leverage? So there are four major things that we can do, but they all come, before I even get into that in any yeah. depth, it really comes back to one thing, which is safety, mm. right? Yeah. 
So if we think about the body and the way the body was designed, not even in just us humans, but going back to the ancient mammals of 50 million years ago, and you know, even ancient reptiles were split into two fundamental nervous systems. One is the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system, and the other one is the parasympathetic rest and digest recovery safety nervous system. The parasympathetic system is responsible for everything we do during recovery, reproduction, immunity, slowing metabolism, making sure that we can sleep and rest and actually recover our energy um, and empathy, every creativity, everything we do when we are safe, we can do when we're safe. We're not running from a lion, right? When we're running from a lion, we want all of that resources, all the resources to go to skeletal muscle, motor cortex, amygdala, motor, uh, respiratory, heart heart, heart lungs, right. To get us out of that threatening situation. So all of that is hardwired in us. So it's critical for us to understand what's hardwired because there's, I don't know if anybody here remembers the matrix, but you know, one of my favorite lines that Morpheus says to Neo when he first gets him into the matrix is, or unplugged or what have you is, there are some rules that can be bent and there are others that can be broken. And when it comes to the autonomic nervous system, those rules do not break. So if you know that what's what you're walking into with what's hardwired in the body and what the body is trained over millions of years to do in response to different things, yeah. all of a sudden it provides a heck of a lot of clarity as to what we can absolutely change yeah. right, and what we can't. Yeah. No, I mean, you could look at mental illness or chronic disease in general as adaptive mechanisms that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years being hijacked by culture. Right. Because, you know, we were meant to store fat. We were meant to, um, we were meant to release melatonin at a certain hour of the evening to get proper sleep. There was all of these adaptive mechanisms that we developed over millennia. And now, you know, we're in culture gives us endless access to any kind of food in and out of season in the palm of our hand. Let's get it here in five minutes. Um, there's no scarcity. There's only growth right. pathways being stimulated, et cetera. Um, and anything less than that, you should be worried. Yeah. You, know, you should be afraid. <laughs> right. Or exposure to, to blue light through on-demand entertainment at all right. the time or whatever. There's all of these ways that we've essentially hijacked adaptive mechanisms and turned them into, honestly, maladaptive mechanisms. So, you know, in a way, it's actually, you know, it's a bit of an intellectual exercise, but you can kind of go back and be like, okay, well, what is nature's foundational intelligence telling me, you know, me the product of, of hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. What is that telling me about the adaptive mechanisms in my body? Right. And, and then how do I, how do I leverage those for a greater flourishing and eudaimonia and et cetera, experience of joy? Um, it's telling us that we want to feel safe and that we need to feel safe. Right. In our own skin. So and the amygdala is a contrast detection mechanism, you know, machine. So it's not necessarily detecting fear. We call it the fear center, but it detects fear as newness, fear as unfamiliarity, fear as different than me. Uh-huh. And the more stressed we are, the more likely we are to perceive difference as threat.
So can we only really instantiate neuroplasticity in, in the parasympathetic state? Is it kind of, or do we need to find kind of enough balance between hormones and neurotransmitters that you're alert enough, like you have enough epinephrine or adrenaline, you know, to be able to focus, but then you also have enough, you know, acetylcholine and GABA in terms of being able to actually be calm enough to process thoughts or to consolidate learning or memory. What's going on there between the balance of all these neurochemicals? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think the short answer is neuroplasticity and learning never stop, right? They right. never stop. If you're in, whether you're sleeping or your, your brain, if you're, if we're asleep, our brain is doing, you know, memory reconsolidation and neuroplasticity through, uh, you know, rearranging of memories and moving memories from short term to long term. When we're awake and we're in a stress state, our bodies are learning around fear. We're learning to associate fear and threat with things that we're experiencing in those moments so that we don't accident like the buttered popcorn analogy, right? Where we don't actually accidentally think the buttered popcorn smell is safe for us because if we did, we might put ourselves in danger, right? Mm -hmm. Even though that's a false association, we were trained to believe it's true and useful and therefore we use it and we continue it until it's untrained. Similarly, we experience this with parasympathetic side, right? And I would argue that what the neuroscience is showing is that for us to allocate resources to our optimization of neuroplasticity and learning, we have to optimize functioning of the parasympathetic nervous system because that's when, even though we can learn when we're under threat and we can learn when we're asleep, when we are actively in an awakeful parasympathetic vagal state, we have most of our resources available to us to be present in the moment Mm -hmm. and to take in and, and, and to optimize listening, right? What mm -hmm. is learning? Learning is listening. And undivided listening is really the goal. Although many of us were never trained to do that properly, being able to tune our brains from doing stuff to just taking in information right. is where is requires a dominantly parasympathetic safety-based state of being. Interesting. So hyper-excitatory states like um, aren't ideal for learning what do you mean by hyper excitatory well um i guess from a biochemical perspective it might be like burst endless burst of glutamate um or uh essentially when we're in, in when neurons are excited it is is that informing our ability to be focused and listen for sure. It's just which neurons are being excited. Okay. Right. Yeah, so it's enough. not, yeah. it's, it's not black and white. Yeah. This is the common misconception of what's happening in the brain is that it's not black and white at all. It's very much all gray. Yeah. Right. Except when we're talking about fear yeah. uh -huh. and except when we're talking about safety, that's when things, obviously there's a spectrum in between, sure. but there is a very, very black and white discerning amygdala that says you're under threat. You are not allowed to take resources and send them to your reproductive system right now. Right. right. right? You're not allowed to take my resources and send them to the immune system. I'm taking those right. and those are going to the skeletal muscles so you can run if you need to. But that means that when you multiply that times time, thinking about illness and this relationship between stress and illness, you take that amount of resource allocation that's going on. It really reframes illness as a resource allocation problem, yeah. right? Our, our amygdala, is exploited by society and all the responsibilities and all the things that are going on and everything we've been taught to be overactive 
in detecting newness as threat. Yeah. Right. But newness is and, and diversity and difference from us are literally the thing that enriches the quality of our lives more than anything else, mm. universally speaking. So we're now accidentally trained or accidentally in that we did not choose to train ourselves to, generally speaking, to perceive the thing that makes our lives rich, the source of the richness in our lives as threatening. Mm. That yeah. is confusing for us. Yeah. Right. And so when we start to think about the amygdala, not it's not saying you're afraid. It's saying, watch out. There's something that's unfamiliar to you around the corner that's in this area. Right. And maybe that's an actual threat, but maybe it's just somebody you've never met before. Maybe it's something about yourself that you didn't know you knew before. Right. It could be any any of the above. Then we have the ability to literally retrain that part by remembering one of the common sentiments that comes from things like ketamine assisted therapy or uh, MDMA assisted therapy or profound meditative states, which is that we're all human first before we're anything else before we are black, white, yellow, green, whatever, or before we wear the clothes that we're wearing and we're all human. Mm -hmm. And if we're all human, then we by definition have a heck of a lot more in common than we do different, like infinitely more. Yeah. Like right. our DNA, what is it? It's like 99.99, whatever percent <laughs> I mean, the same. Yeah. And we have the same fundamental wants, needs, and desires. We all want air, water, food, shelter, connection, and acceptance by our community, yeah. right? And to feel like some part of something bigger. We all want that. So if we can admit that we all want that and we all want to feel safe and in control most of the time, mm -hmm. then we can give that to each other for free without actually and help each other feel safe without actually like requiring anything in return other than just that safety yeah right because that's something we can give to each other for free the reason i'm in business is people forgot how to give that to each other so they pay me you yeah. know but literally any of us can do that for each other and now it's about relearning how to do that and and psychedelic medicines and things like apollo that we developed to are to help do this it's about helping people feel safe enough in their own skin so not just in the office, but in their day-to-day -day lives so that they can say, oh, wait, actually that fear response, that amygdala is blasting off. It's telling me I should be afraid right now. Well, I'm not running from a lion. Yeah. There's nothing around the corner that's about to get me. Why do I, I just, you know, you can settle down, bro. It's okay. Right. Yeah, but modernity tends to hijack the amygdala. And here we are in, in incessant sympathetic overload. And that has all sorts of endocrine knock-on impacts and right. metabolic knock-on impacts, et cetera. And so, I mean, you, you look at the, um, at the correlation um, or relationship between uh, stress and mental disorders and physiological disorders. I mean, they're like, hand in hand. they're hand in hand. In fact, they're really not any different, you know, in some ways. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think what, is again reassuring is that there are a whole variety of modalities and protocols that we can adopt to essentially move ourselves into parasympathetic safety. Right. And in some ways it like, they're very uh, intuitive. Um, that doesn't mean they're easy to do. <laughs> in fact, they're very difficult to adopt sometimes. But if you think about like, what is fight or flight like? What is it like to be in that state? Oh, okay, well, my respiratory rate is going up. <sighs> I'm breathing, you know, I'm breathing mm -hmm. really quickly. Well, what 
the breath is this incredible tool that doesn't always have to be uh, involuntary. In fact, you know, we have um, conscious control over our breath such that we can almost trick ourselves back into a parasympathetic state. Mm-hmm. So maybe unpack, you can just talk about breath, but you can also talk about touch um, and other different kinds of protocols that we can consciously adopt that can then change over time mm-hmm. our bottom-up uh, habits. So this, so it starts with it starts with three things, which are the thinking about the understanding of what it means to feel safe, which is for us to feel in control mm-hmm. and to and to know that we're in control of certain things. The second thing is to actually do the thing that makes us and reminds us that we're in control. And the third thing is to actually feel it and then rinse and repeat. Okay. So this is based on sort of a a very well understood cognitive behavioral therapy framework, which is the relationship between our, our thoughts, understanding, behaviors, and feeling. So if you think about anxiety, just to break anxiety down into the risk of being called a reductionist, what I will say is that most anxiety that we experience in our day to day lives comes from spending our limited time. We only have, a, if you imagine, we only have whatever much, however much time we're awake each day we have 100% of that available to pay attention to stuff, right? If we choose to pay attention to stuff that we don't have control over during that time, say 70% of that time, like what other people think about us, which we don't have control over, yeah. or what we could have done, what we did, how we're upset about something we did the day before, or what have you, then we are ensuring that we feel out of control 70% of the time mm. or more. And if we spend that time in turn recognizing that we can choose to pay attention to things we do have control over, like our breath in any moment, movement, physical movement in any moment, soothing touch, applying soothing touch to yourself, we can do it in any moment, or what we listen to, our attention, and music, song, right? These things we can do in any moment. All of a sudden, we feel in control that much more of the time, which then makes us feel safe. So it's really, which then tells our amygdala that, hey, you're safe enough to feel in control right now. You're safe enough to feel this breath. You're safe enough to give attention to that breath or this movement or this song or this feeling in your body. You can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. If you were running from a lion, this is the, this is the criti- critical understanding of the hardwired, what, can, what can't be, be bent or what can't be broken, right? Yeah. What's hardwired is going to take over because we've evolved it over millions and millions of years, it is not going away. So if we were actually under real survival threat, you best believe your sympathetic nervous system is going to kick on and not allow you to be, to be thinking about how attracted you are to your predator right now, right? <laughs> this is a very yeah. real thing. And so that understanding what's hardwired in that way is because you know being attracted to our predator would lead to certain demise, right? Yeah. Our bodies are okay. hardwired to not do that. Stock, so Stockholm syndrome or something. Yeah. Right? Well, right. Yeah. Well, that's the human version, right? right. Where we, we take a lot of time to convince somebody that they're, <laughs> their predator or their capture captive, uh, they're, um, they are who they're captive to is actually somebody that they are very respectful of, right. which is very interesting. But it's this idea that, um, you know, we have control over a lot more than we think we do. And it's the feeling of being out of control that drives fear, 
which then drives us to make impulsive, selfish decisions, which is that culture element you were talking about. So we have the ability and only we have the ability to remind ourselves that we are safe because we're in control of how we feel in this moment. If we can regulate our nervous system by taking a deep breath or moving our moving at all, doing a dance, listening to a song, you know, putting some touch on your body, feeling your Apollo, whatever it is, any of those four things, touch, music, listening, uh, movement and breath, you can literally switch the resources in the nervous system over to the parasympathetic recovery side in as mm-hmm. little as seconds. It just takes a little practice. Mm-hmm. And just by starting to do that, you recondition and rewire your own nervous system. So in summary, while some people experience relief from SSRIs, it's generally temporary. SSRIs are noted for their emotional numbing effect, but psychedelics, on the other hand, have been found to induce a burst of serotonin that can potentially help rewire the brain by establishing new neural connections. So next up is Jason Robel. Now, while standing in his kitchen, Jason considered ending his life. He was that depressed, but it was his kitchen itself that in fact saved his life. After a comprehensive battery of medical tests, Jason discovered that he had suboptimal neurotransmitter function, which led him to become an expert in the nutrition needed for optimal mental health. Now, from his own experience, he found which foods, which herbs, and which supplements can improve cognitive function and mood. So here you have Jason Robel. We can geek out on this for a minute. So if you're looking at your phone, and we know that the attention economy is geared to use scandal and sensationalism and hyperbole, and deploy that information such that it leverages your human negativity bias, so Mm -hmm. fear and outrage that spike certain neurotransmitters and hormones for the express purposes of uh, getting as many views, likes, engagement as possible, often to sell ads, but sometimes just to garner influence. So that is how it's designed. So essentially, if you are eating while ingesting that kind of information, what is happening to you at a physiological level? Well, you're being put into a state of fight or flight or sympathetic overload or amygdala hijack, however you want to describe it, Mm -hmm. where your body then produces certain kinds of hormones and neurotransmitters, some of which you referenced before, but like epinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol, et cetera. And what that is doing is that it's taking the blood that is normally uh, focused in a parasympathetic state around digestion and taking it away from your gut and putting it towards your extremities to your arms and your legs and increasing breath rate and increasing heart rate because you think you're being attacked by a saber tooth tiger. Right. When you're just reading a news report on your iPhone. Right. Right. And then you're eating food and you might be eating the most marvelous food in the world, 
But if you're in that state, you are not optimized to properly digest and get the most uh, nutrient absorption from that food if you are in this other state. That's right. So, you know, this is why uh, it, it's just so important to pay attention. Um, and, and also, it's almost, it's so much more pleasurable, as you said, too, to take that moment, however you get there, whether that's through a prayer or through conscious breath work, because the breath, for example, is your conduit into your subconscious. And so you can leverage the breath to move yourself from a sympathetic state back into a parasympathetic state by essentially tricking your nervous system mm-hmm. through certain breath patterns. So, you know, there's tons of them out there, but you could just do a simple box breathing, a four by four by four by four, or, you know, Andrew Weil has, I think it's the four, eight, nine, or, yep. you know, where you're holding it for a certain, but these are all kinds of breath patterns that move you back into this rest and digest. Now there's other breath patterns like Wim Hof's that actually move you into a sympathetic state <laughs> where you want the epinephrine, right? Right. And, and you're getting that. So just being conscious of how to move yourself between the, the, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system can give you a lot of mechanistic control then, which, uh, which has everything to do with how you digest your food. Right. And I think this brings up two interesting things, which is perhaps uh, a commonly held belief that we are um, slaves to our state of being. It is what it is. I, I'm in a fury. I'm, I'm, you know, you know, people think that, uh, they don't have the kind of control we're talking about to implement certain practices to intentionally regulate our nervous system through breathing. And, you know, the other point I wanted to make too is um, there's a counterproductive aspect to the the scenario, scenario you were describing of, um, I call it either doom scrolling or disaster baiting, mm-hmm. where we're, we're addicted to the cortisol, we're addicted to the adrenaline. Cortisol and adrenaline can also be a thing that we are addicted to. And so when we are doom scrolling, um, we're sort of looking for that next fix. And the problem with this though, in the scenario you described, we're eating this healthy meal, we've prepared it with so much intention. Then we're doom scrolling on our phone. Our cortisol level goes up. And there's been some Japanese studies I referenced in, uh, in my book, Eternity. They did a study of uh, Japanese women who had elevated cortisol and adrenaline levels and found that it was correlated to um, weight gain. And so the, the thing is people can be putting all this time and attention into like, I'm, I'm going to the gym and I'm, I'm eating all this healthy food and I'm having my salad every day yet their cortisol levels are constantly elevated and they wonder why they can't lose the excess weight they want to lose. Now, I'm not trying to sound like weight loss is a a very simplistic thing. There are certainly many other factors related to that conversation. But if your cortisol is always being just boom through the roof and you wonder why you can't lose excess weight, it's because you're not letting that hormone level get balanced. Absolutely. Well, high chronic cortisol rates are correlated with high blood glucose levels mm-hmm. and when you have high blood glucose chronically yep. your insulin can only usher so much glucose into your cells for energy production so when it's there in the bloodstream 
it only has a few other options. Like some of it can get stored as glycogen in the liver. Um, some of it, you know, becomes kind of part of these glycoproteins, which are called advanced glycation end products, which creates inflammation in your circulatory system. But the rest of it is just stored as triglycerides, as adipose tissue. Right. You know, often kind of visceral fat. You know, this is where I stored, you know, I had kind of like these muffin tops, you know, for years. And, I, you know, honestly, I, um, I, uh, I look to kind of chronic high cortisol levels um, for having that kind of little band of visceral fat. Um, because, you know, I was constantly stressed and drinking, you know, a tremendous amount of coffee when I'm stressed, et cetera. Like, um, and it was, uh, and even though my diet was good and I was going to the gym, you know, I was like, hmm, why do I have all this excess visceral fat, you know, cortisol levels? Chronic uh, stress. Is, chronic stress. Yeah. So um, I want to just touch on dopamine because we, we sort of skirted over it earlier and I want to get your thoughts on it because for me, it's kind of this Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde neurotransmitter um, and it's a hormone, I believe. Mm -hmm. So can you unpack dopamine uh, for, for, in all of its positive and, and dubious role? Yeah. So um, we talk about, I, I call social media and, and iPhones the dopamine dispenser because it... Um, it's directly related to your body's reward system. You know, it's, it's pleasure, it's achievement, it's arousal, it's learning. It's, it's, um, you know, we, we, we feel good about ourselves, you know, dopamine's like the sexy neurotransmitter. And, you know, if we, if we, if we look at dopamine, you know, it's easy to get addicted to sources of dopamine. I mean, we could talk about actual drugs that are, um, you know, like cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, you know, they act directly on, on the dopamine system. So we talk about the nature of addiction. Um, a lot of the, the sort of drugs and whether that's a digital drug or a physical drug are directly related to hijacking our dopamine. Um, mm -hmm. Now, you know, before I get into sort of my rant about social media and digital technology, I do want to say that, you know, without relying on cocaine and methamphetamines, you know, there are ways to naturally boost dopamine, you know, two, two of the things that I like to use, um, and I'll get into sort of my, my dopamine protocol or my dopamine detox in a second. Um, one is a, a Ayurvedic, uh, food called Macuna prurians. It's also known as the velvet bean. And it's something that they've been using in Ayurvedic medicine for you know, thousands of years. But the West, I think in like maybe the last 10 years, it's kind of come into vogue here. And the interesting thing about Macuna prurians, Jeff, uh, first from a culinary perspective, um, you can get it in powder form. And it's very kind of smoky and earthy and, and a little bit dirty, kind of like a shilajit. It's just, it's very earthy and, and, not easily consumable like a teaspoon or a tablespoon of it, but you can incorporate it into, say, like a hot chocolate, a sugar-free hot chocolate, sugar-free, dairy-free hot chocolate, okay? goes great in there. The cool thing about Macuna is there's been studies. Um, you talk about PubMed. There's a few on there. There's one in particular uh, from 2014, doctors Galani and Rana. Um, they did studies on the antidepressant effects 
of macuna and how it affects dopamine. Well, there's an amino acid called L-DOPA in macuna prurians that has been shown to you know, affect the non-androgenic and serotogenic systems and, and that it can literally have an effect on not only depression and boosting our dopamine, but there's another cool thing about macuna, which they look at um, neurologically degenerative conditions like Parkinson's. And they've done some cool research with macuna on um, affecting the brain and, and Parkinson's patients. So for anyone who wants to look that up, it's M-U-C-U-N-A, macuna. Um, the other thing about dopamine that I like to use to naturally boost it um, is a herb called saffron. Um, saffron helps to affect not only dopamine, but also serotonin. Saffron is cool because, um, if you've ever seen a saffron flower, it's this gorgeous, like purple lilac flower. It's, um, it's a crocus flower and it's got these red, these beautiful crimson threads that grow out of the center of the flower. Um, it has been used dating back to the Egyptian times. I think maybe 1600 BC or so might be the first evidence of its usage. But when you harvest this saffron, um, it's incredibly labor intensive. It's one of the most expensive foods in the world. Uh, right now, I think a pound of it, depending on the grade, can go between $500 and $5,000 for a pound of saffron. But the cool thing is these compounds, these mood elevating compounds, um, there was a, a, a study in the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Science that found that the extracts of saffron directly increase dopamine in the brain. The downside is it's expensive as hell. And what you're seeing now in um, coming into vogue is, uh, you know how matcha lattes got big like five or seven years ago and matcha was the thing because everyone's like, oh, well, you need, you need L-theanine because if your cognition and your memory and your brain function's low, you got to get this amino acid L-theanine and matcha is the way to do it. Well, now... Yeah kind of what's coming into vogue are these saffron lattes for people to boost their dopamine, but there is a, they're prohibitively expensive. So I feel like, I don't know what it's going to take to like alter the market for saffron, but there's been some cool research about it affecting dopamine levels. And, and I think it's delicious. It's just bloody expensive. Yeah. Maybe Starbucks is involved in the baby godification of, of saffron. Yeah. <laughs> As I was looking at the precursors of dopamine, mm -hmm. similarly uh, to how we discussed uh, tryptophan as a precursor of serotonin, um, one of the amino acids that I came across was tyrosine. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and tyrosine gets converted to L-DOPA, which is essentially eventually synthesized into dopamine. Um, and some people I, I do think are supplementing with tyrosine. It is found, um, I think the word tyros actually in Greek means cheese. Um, <laughs> so I think it is must be in cheese. Um, but I, I think that uh, it's also found in, um, in in other kinds of fish um, as well, and I'm sure there's there, there's other uh, high protein foods where you can find tyrosine. 
Um, but it is uh, your body also endogenously makes tyrosine. It's not an essential amino acid the way tryptophan is. So tryptophan, you actually have to get it from your diet. Right. Um, I think your body actually creates tyrosine out of other amino acids uh, naturally because your body is incredible. Yeah. Um, but um, saffron is interesting. In fact, I interviewed Dr. Daniel Amen last week. Oh, I, I think. love Dr. Amen. And he's all about saffron all day. Yep. Um, what about some of the adaptogens and dopamine, like uh, rhodiola and, and ashwagandha? Any yeah. connection there? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, these, these adaptogens have the ability to, you know, not only regulate certain aspects of the endocrine system, but we talked about those hormones, those stress hormones, you know, ashwagandha is one of the best things that you can take in terms of being under periods of high, high stress, um, helping to, you know, regulate those stress hormones we were talking about. But yeah, you, you brought up two of the big ones. And we, we go back to this ancient wisdom of Ayurveda. We've talked about Bacopa for serotonin. We've talked about Macuna for dopamine. You brought up Rhodiola, Ashwagandha. These adaptogens have the intelligence encoded in them to help regulate our body systems. So it's interesting to me, and I know this is a, a tenet of why you do what you do at Commune, but it's, it's taking what's old and making it new again. You know, they've been using these things in traditional Chinese medicine or, or, you know, if we look at boosting the immune system, we looked at TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, we look at reishi mushroom, we look at, you want to talk about brain function, lion's mane is yeah. a, an incredible mushroom in terms of neurological function, repairing synapses. Uh, lion's mane is like my number one mushroom right now. And you're actually going out into stores now and you're seeing them sell these giant, I mean, huge caps of lion's mane. One thing I like to do, Jeff, is actually smash the lion's mane, like flatten it, and then I'll grill it like a steak. I'll, I'll marinate it in like a barbecue sauce, and you can actually slice the lion's mane mushroom, these huge, huge caps of it, and, uh, and turn it into like fajitas or just eat it like you would a regular steak. So if you're looking for like mushrooms that help the brain, um, lion's mane is like my number one right now. I love it. I love cooking with it. I love experimenting with it. It's meaty. It's dense. It's really good. Yeah. Is there a connection between lion's mane and BDNF? I don't know like, what BDNF is. Uh, I think it's brain-derived neurotropic factor or some sort of... Um, anyways, I just... Uh, I heard someone talking about lion's mane in conjunction. Yeah, BDNF, I believe, is brain-derived neurotropic factor. Um, we'll have to do uh, part two. We will. On BDNF. Um because it, more and more, I, I, I hear about it um, in conjunction with brain health and with neuroplasticity and learning. So, BDNF. Yeah, I, I, I looked it up in real time, as I'm apt to do. There you go. And uh, there is on our favorite PubMed, a analysis of the neurotropic uh, isodolinones from the fruiting bodies of lion's mane. And go. it talks about how it increases the protein expression of NGF, uh, the BDNF, and synaptophysin in C2 N2A cells, uh, which apparently helps with memory improvement. So yeah, you just turned me on to a whole new, uh -oh. whole new phrase that I did not know about my beautiful friend, which is one reason why I like yeah. doing these conversations with you. Yeah, well, this is why we do them, to learn from each other and hopefully spawn new uh, areas of curiosity. Um, 
I want to uh, kind of in, in our remaining time, pull on a thread that you, you brought up that I think is pertinent to your life and, and where you're going now. Mm. And it's sort of the rediscovery of things that are old and true to address, you know, problems that appear to be new. Mm -hmm. Sounded a little Dr. Seuss there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But, uh, you know, we, we consistently come across these new trends like yoga and meditation and the paleolithic diet and regenerative agriculture and organic food and ashwagandha and rhodiola and saffron. These things are fucking old. Yeah. (laughs) They're old. Um, And, you know, we rediscover them in the West and we commercialize them as, as we're apt to do. Um, But in many ways, you know, I think that we are hungry um, literally for things that are old and adaptive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in some ways, you know, I think we get to these places in our own lives where we feel the calling that pull to reconnect with things that are old and true. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring that up in relation to kind of where you are kind of on your journey right now. Yeah. I look back Jeff to my, my childhood and, and growing up in, um, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, the cool thing about Detroit was these, um, these great lakes that surrounds that beautiful state and all the woods nearby. So even though I grew up in the city, uh, I had access to, you know, spelunking these, interesting little adventures as a child. And I think as I, as I've gone on in, as I've gone on in my life, um, there was this deep drive to, you know, be in the city and move to Chicago and move to New York city and move to SF and spend summers in Europe and, you know, LA now for almost 17 years. And, um, I think what I'm realizing is that I need to be with nature all of the time. You know, this, I I think back on my time in New York and and LA and it was always like, oh, you got to go upstate. You got to get out of the city. You know, just just go upstate and and reconnect. And here in LA, it's go to Griffith Park or, you know, go to Malibu or, but the kind of thing that I'm feeling called to do right now is this immersion in nature, where is just this deep reconnection with as I mentioned before, growing food, um, getting into this communion that I remember as a child that I think on some level I have been missing and craving through being a city dweller for 45 years of my life. And I was in Hawaii for almost all of July, as I'd mentioned. And um, I was actually there working with my therapist doing um, somatic healing, somatic therapy, and also plant medicine with him. So what I'm about to say, you know, I want to color it by by saying that I am a huge proponent of things like psilocybin and ayahuasca, LSD, ketamine, 
MDMA. I think that these substances, when used with the right intention and the right aim, can be tremendous assists in our healing process as human beings. So this plant medicine experience that I've been having for a decade in different forms with the backdrop of being in the ocean every day and walking down the road in Hawaii and picking a papaya and grabbing a coconut and finding, you know, wild mustard and arugula by the side of the road. And it confirmed what I think I've known on a soul level for a while, which is I have had my fill of the great metropolises of the earth. I know what city life is like. It has its beauty and its benefits, but my soul needs to be with nature every day, not just going on a hike once a week, not just going to, you know, point doom on the week. Like I want to be in it, you know, forgive the phrase balls deep, you know, put my dick in the dirt every day and just be, you know, be in it, be in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm excited about this because there's, there, there's, I know that this move and this desire, this soul calling to be with nature is a part of my healing process, but I think it's also a part of my creative process. When I was there, like I, the channel was just open. It was just open. All of these ideas for a new book were coming through and ideas for songs were coming through. And I'm, I'm just filling the pages of my journal every day. So this, this, symbiotic relationship that humans have with nature, I think is something that as we go on in an increasingly digitalized society, that more and more humans are going to be seeking out. I have a feeling that when we talk about community, as we did before, and the healing that happens in a community, the healing that happens in uh, an environment where we're growing our own food, we're reconnecting to nature, I think people are going to be seeking that out en masse. Because there's, a, I think there's a growing discontent with materialism. I think there's a growing discontent with bigger, better, more, faster, this, this hungry ghost that we're constantly chasing to try and fill ourselves up. Mm-hmm. And I think through my own mental health, my own healing journey, I've realized that, you know, I don't need that much to be happy. Like the the less stuff that I have and the less complicated my life is, Jeff, the better I feel. So to have a simple life, to have a life where I'm surrounded by loving, supportive community, where we're growing food, we're sharing food, we're, we're doing all of these things, like that's the next chapter of my life. And I'm very clear that that's the next chapter of my life. And so I've already started taking like bags of shit down to the Goodwill center. I'm like calling friends like, do you need this extra computer? Do you need this bean bag? Cause I've got this bean bag. I'm not taking this bean bag. And the, the, the sort of shedding of superfluous things, not only material things, but superfluous ideas that I have to be in LA to make it. And I have to be in LA to be a success. And I have to force my soul to be in an environment it doesn't want to be in. Like I'm just, I'm shedding a lot right now, a, a lot of concepts, a lot of belief systems that no longer serve me. And it feels really good to let go. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. They, yeah it said that knowledge is adding things, but wisdom is giving things away. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about of neurotransmitters and physiology how the body works, mechanisms. And um, 
and as I'm listening to you talk about the future that you plotted for yourself, I'm, uh, it brings up this question of like, well, what does nature do? And uh, what is the foundational intelligence of it? And when I think of human physiology, for example, in the context of many of the things that we've discussed, yeah, your body produces free radicals, a reactive oxygen species, and it also produces antioxidants. And guess what? When your body is hypoglycemic, it produces glucagon. And when it's hyperglycemic, it produces the counterpart called insulin. And there's your autonomic nervous system. And sometimes you're in your parasympathetic state and you've got serotonin flowing. And sometimes you're in your sympathetic state and you've got adrenaline or epinephrine or cortisol flowing. And what nature does is that it creates an asymmetrical kind of sensitive order between the yin and the yang of life. Mm or the yin and the yang of your own physical body or organism. And to be in nature's course, to step into the river and be in its current and refine the skill to apply the rudder just right so you're leveraging its power. I mean, that is Taoism. But uh, that might be the greatest fulfillment of self-realization. Because uh, certainly the easiest way to tire and drown is to consistently swim upstream. And mm. uh, in many ways, I think the more that we can understand and align with the foundational intelligence of nature, the healthier and the happier and the more fulfilled we're going to be. And it sounds like, um, you know, you're tacking uh, with that wind right now. I am. And, uh, you know, there's something about clean air, clean water, fresh food, good loving community. You know, I, I think back to Dan Butner's work with the Blue Zones and those foundational principles of those centenarians that he interviewed in those those areas around the world. and you see a lot of these basic principles of daily movement, communing with nature, eating food that's local, mostly plants, having a spiritual practice, having a loving, supportive community. Um, these, are, these are foundational elements that in this increasingly technocratic world, I think many humans are losing sight of. And the reality is in human history, we're not that far removed from this. I mean, the industrial revolution is what, 120, 130-ish years? Mm -hmm. These principles of how humanity used to live are only several generations ago. We're not talking thousands of years. So this return, it's interesting to describe it. It's like, um, I thought I would live and die in the city. Mm -hmm. And life has this beautiful way of surprising us with these unexpected twists and turns in our, in our script, in our movie that we're living in. And, um, yeah, the idea of living simply, it's not just sort of an intellectual concept anymore. Um, I have an embodied experience of it, and I want more of it. So you could say I'm addicted to simplicity. I'm getting addicted to simplicity, Jeff. 
Jason learned firsthand that constant exposure to sensationalism and negative information triggers physiological responses, putting individuals in a state of fight or flight, affecting digestion and overall mental well-being. Natural substances like mucuna and saffron are potential dopamine boosters and adaptogens like ashwagandha and rhodiola have been found to aid in regulating stress hormones. It's worth noting that beyond ingesting plants, there is healing power in just being immersed in nature too. The field of mental health treatment is packed with complexities and the treatments themselves are uniquely specific to the needs of the individual. As our understanding of the potential of psychedelic assisted therapy evolves, we can hopefully develop personalized solutions for people suffering from mental illness, combining traditional talk therapy, conventional pharmacology, and plant medicine options. The field of mental health treatment is packed with complexities and the treatments themselves are uniquely specific to the needs of the individual. As our understanding of the potential of psychedelic assisted therapy evolves, we can hopefully develop personalized solutions for people suffering from mental illness, combining traditional talk therapy, conventional pharmacology, and plant medicine options. So if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. Leave a comment to let us know your thoughts and don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I am here for you.